Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe, on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Tesuetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Suetmikulu. And we don't have a specific place to acknowledge today, Joe, because this minisode is about placelessness. Placelessness. <laughs> and settler colonialism and other fun things. Oh, yeah. This is yeah. going to be a bit of a barn burner, folks. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, to be fair, we did acknowledge the place that we're recording the show on. So mm -hmm. so we're only acknowledging where we are today, because one of the things we want to talk about is how a lot of YA, maybe by and for white people, sort of takes space as a kind of universal construct and doesn't really spend a lot of time establishing place so that's what mm -hmm. we wanted to talk about today because we've had these two texts in a row where joe and i were like uh where is this even supposed to be set it's not mm -hmm. anywhere yeah. it's everyone's property yes. oh wait it's white people's property apparently yeah yeah so i'm i'm interested i went digging through the research and couldn't find much but before we jump into all that i think we're gonna do a little bit of homework maybe yes indeed so brenna have you been reading or watching anything both okay Ooh, look at you go <laughs> so i finally uh watched the second season of the exploding universe of ashley garcia which is now called ashley garcia genius in love sure yeah okay <laughs> i actually think i'm trying to decide if i'm mad about the name change or not i have a suspicion because the seasons are really mini right they're like eight episodes yes so i have a suspicion that each season is going to have a different name so Exploding oh, okay. the Universe of Ashley Garcia was like her arriving in Pasadena and Genius in Love was her getting together with Tad. Mm. But I'm holding judgment until we know if they're doing a season three. Right. Yeah. And folks, if you don't remember exactly what we're talking about, see previous minisode, The Exploding World of Ashley Garcia. And I enjoyed it. I think, Joe, all the problems you have with the show still exist in yeah. season two. But all the things that we liked about it still exist also. There's less workplace stuff and it becomes much more interested in the romantic lives of the teenage characters and also right. the romantic life of of the uncle okay which in a way is good because it streamlines some of the things that were like awkward and weird about the show in the first season mm -hmm. but the flip side is that it's starting to treat ashley's genius more like a gag in the vein of big bang theory as opposed to like oh, hmm. being something interesting and cool about her like it is in the first season. So right. okay. that was a disappointment. The relationships are cute. I do believe I told you I thought the uncle was going to sing in the second yes, season. Of course. And I was yeah. right. Yes, he yes, does. Yes, <laughs> because as we established in that first episode, he is an actual singer in real life. Yeah, he's like a pop star. So okay. it was fun. He gets kind of an interesting love story. Yeah, I don't know. It's cute and fun. It's really low stakes pandemic television. If sure. you like the first season, it's worth watching the second. If you didn't like go. the first season, don't bother. That's what I would say. 
Okay, yeah, because as you said, nothing has really changed. I mean, nothing has really changed. Part of this is that, particularly with these more sitcom-oriented properties, really what you see is most likely what you're going to continue to get. They're not going to mess mm-hmm. with that too, too much. No, exactly. And you know, I don't think the show is doing anything particularly revolutionary outside of the protagonist character. So, right, you know, it continues on in that vein. But it's okay. worth watching and it's amusing. And then the other thing, speaking of gentle content, that's all I'm into right now. <laughs> you really are. You're on a gentle bent. <laughs> I read two comics that are sort of YANA that our listeners might be interested in. Nice. Okay. I read Bloom by Kevin Panetta, which is a queer love story that takes place in a bakery. Hmm, Highly that recommend. Charming. Lots of bread. And I read uh, Rainbow Rowell and Faith Aaron Hicks' Pumpkinheads, which you should really read in the fall. It takes place in a pumpkin patch. It's a bit weird to read it in the middle of winter. Hmm. And, you know, Rainbow Rowell and Faith Aaron Hicks are both well-known for being kind of problematic faves with some of their representation issues. But it's still a very cute romance. And if you're in need of a low-stakes cute romance, uh, I would recommend both. Pumpkinheads and Bloom. So okay. that's where I'm at. I don't want anything where anything bad happens. I just want to be cozy. Okay. So clearly <laughs> I will be representing that other end of the spectrum then. <laughs> oh gosh, what have you been up to? <laughs> so admittedly, I haven't been watching a lot of specifically YA related content. I just finished up doing some Sundance stuff. So it's been a lot of dreary horror films and moody melodramas for adults. But um That is Sundance in a nutshell, moody melodramas for adults. Indeed. Selling for high prices. Although there was a film that we could think about covering if and when it ever gets released on Apple. A film called Coda, which is about a child of two deaf parents and her struggle about whether or not to leave the family business and kind of leave them to fend for themselves so she can pursue her own dreams. Apparently it's quite the tearjerker, but it sold for $25 million out of Sundance. Whoa. But yeah, the reviews were very like, it's very heartfelt, and it will absolutely make you cry. Oh, oh, okay. Yay. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I wish I could have seen it, but I missed it. And then the problem is, is once you hear about things, they're already gone, and you can't catch them anymore. So the thing that I will talk about is a TV show that Brian is forcing me to watch. So my husband, (laughs) if people don't know, he's very interested in magic and science fiction and that kind of stuff. So we balance between different shows that we're watching. So he really wanted to watch a show on Netflix called Ragnarok. and As in Thor? Very much so. Yeah, okay. so it is a live action television show. Uh, I can't remember how many episodes, but it is a Norwegian language fantasy drama. And it's inspired by Norse mythology. So it's about brothers who move to a small town with their single mother, and almost immediately the older son learns that he has magical abilities, and it's because something about this town, it's the last place in Norway to become Christian because it is the fabled site of the Ragnarok battle between gods and giants. Oh, So the insinuation is that he, I believe, is going to be representing the giants, but, uh, you know, there's a nefarious rich family who has a controlling stake of all the property, and, you know, there's drama with kids at the school. We're only one episode in, 
That first episode ends with a bit of a stunning, seeming death of a main character that I was not expecting. So I'm actually kind of intrigued to see where it goes. It's a gentle recommendation, not in the same gentle sense for you, but uh, (laughs) it's a gentle recommendation in the way that I don't know whether or not it will actually pay off, but it's intriguing enough that we immediately said, oh, okay, yeah, let's watch another couple episodes. Also, the landscapes must be fun to watch. It's hilarious because they keep talking about how the town is trashy and dirty and nobody wants to live there, but (laughs) the scenery is gorgeous. (laughs) Mountains and forests. They go hiking in the first episode, and all I want to do is go hiking now. (laughs) I find that in Irish cinema in particular, they're always like, this is a dead-end town and everybody needs to get out. And then you see the landscape and you're like... Yeah, no, it looks like it looks like an SHIT hole. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's gorgeous. <laughs> I mean, maybe the people are garbage, but these views, how can you not appreciate them? <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's, it's interesting. Anytime you see, like, art from a culture where it is just beautiful there and the beauty becomes like, eh, whatever, it's gorgeous here. What do you want from us? Like, mm-hmm. I just, I really enjoy it. <laughs> we can't just rest on these gorgeous landscapes all the time. <laughs> But maybe that's a appropriate segue to talk about Mm -hmm. the relationship that art and content has to the land and why we've been struggling with this problematic aspect lately. Yeah. So as I kind of mentioned off the top, I started to go digging through the journal databases looking for something about placelessness. Mm -hmm. And I didn't find much. If I was a young, energetic grad student, I would take that as a reason to run with this idea. So if we have any young, energetic grad students listening, (laughs) strongly recommend. Other people, pick up the baton and do the work for us. Yeah, I'm old and tired and it's not going to happen for me. You know, we think a lot about place Obviously, when we talk about Indigenous art and literature, because it's part of the sort of recognition of how communities have developed over time, right? Mm -hmm. But we also talk about space and place a lot in migrant literature, whether it's a a hearkening home or a desire to be connected to the community space that has been built. So I'm fascinated by these recent texts we've looked at where... Place seems to be just not not of any interest. And I I'm interested in it as kind of an expression of settler colonialism, this idea that like the space, the place is some kind of universal. You know, like I'm thinking back to the road trip book where we couldn't figure out where it started, right? Why can't I remember which one that is? Is that the ultimate playlist of noise? Yeah, ultimate playlist of noise. So it's literally a road trip story. That doesn't have a beginning. (laughs) It doesn't have a beginning. And it often doesn't have any, like we see there's a particular thing he wants to get in a particular place, but often the places aren't even named. Mm -hmm. It to me speaks to a certain kind of mentality, which is, and I'll cop to this as a settler colonial, I think it's something where we just feel like everything is ours. And I Mm -hmm. see it almost as an extension of humanity's relationship to the environment more broadly right where human Mm. beings just get to eat up natural resources we get to build whatever we want we don't care about moving species out of their natural habitat so that we can build stuff and the sad fact is is that we as a people white people have done this to other cultures and basically just said no what you have the place the home that you have built is 
immaterial to us because we somehow have a higher claim to this. It's one of those things where I don't think we recognize that we're even doing it until Mm -hmm. you start to pay attention. Because I really hadn't noticed it until you brought it up repeatedly. And I realized, oh, this is such a white mentality, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. And it's not to say that there are no white writers who care about place. Obviously, there are. And there are specific regional literatures, I think, where place is really important. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm currently reading The Innocents by Michael Crummy, which is set in Newfoundland. Michael Crummy is a very famous Newfoundland writer. I was very much thinking, yeah, like East Coast and Maritimes. Yes. I think the coastal areas do a better job of this. It's almost like urban, white I want to say culture, but I also kind of don't. Mm-hmm. But the urban white experience in particular, I think, tends to be one that assumes a certain universality of experience. Yes. That we don't see in regional literatures in particular. And the same is true in the States, you know, with, with Southern or with Appalachian literatures, where space and place are important. You know, mm-hmm. I'm thinking particularly in a YA context of a book I read over Christmas, A Cuban Girl's Guide to Tea and Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It starts in Miami, and then she goes to London, and place is so exquisitely articulated. Like, it feels like you could see and touch and taste the Miami of her memories, but also she's still thinking through London in terms of place, right? And she's often comparing place. And you can just see for this protagonist that the place she comes from is so important to who she is as a person mm-hmm. that the place she embodies and inhabits also becomes that important right just through comparison if nothing else oh that's fascinating because i'm thinking too about the conversations that we had around our kind of trifecta of a house on mango street a tree grows mm-hmm. in brooklyn and then of mm-hmm. course our most recent book club pick brown girl dreaming there we go mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Really, all of those seem very firmly rooted in that sense of place and also time. Mm -hmm. But I'm also very cognizant that two of those texts were written by writers of color. Mm -hmm. And it does seem like immigrant experiences and people who have, I don't know, been uprooted, like they're so much more cognizant of the connection that they have to community and how community ends up becoming rooted in a sense of place. And in House on Mango Street, and also Cuban Girl's Guide to Tea and Tomorrow, those are obviously both Hispanic American literatures, but they're also both first generation literatures, right? Mm. Like, they're both being written by the generation after the migrant generation. And I think that that too, is really significant. You know, and I speak from the most white bread articulation of this experience, but we've talked on the show before about how my parents are both English. Right. And like, When you are the child of immigrants, they are always, because that's just the way you experience life and the world, uh, comparing themselves and their experience to what they knew before, right? Right, And so you always have this awareness that the place in which you inhabit, it's just one place, right? There are (laughs) other places. And I wonder if in the ultimate playlist of noise, yes, it's, it's sort of an assumption of the universal. And yes, it creates kind of a like pan-american whiteness that doesn't engage with either indigenous or migrant cultures Mm -hmm. but i think the effect is a less nuanced a less rich experience for the reader or the viewer right like kurt vonnegut has this phrase about 
becoming unstuck in time. And he's using it to describe, well, he's using it sort of to describe trauma. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking about unstuck in place and the way in which for the reader, it's a lot harder to orient yourself in a text that isn't at all interested in place. And it's not something I used to be aware of, but I'm sort of acutely aware of it. I think at least in part because of the way we started to do our territorial acknowledgements and wanting to engage with the territory of the text we're writing about and talking mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. So now suddenly we're like looking. Well, we're so much more cognizant of it. Yeah. Yeah. But now I want it, right? <laughs> like even when I'm reading books that aren't for the show, I really want it. Like Pumpkinheads that I just talked about in Homework. It's set in a pumpkin patch in Omaha and it's like particularly a pumpkin patch in Omaha. And I don't know. I appreciated that. Like, I appreciated that sense that it just has a place. It exists somewhere. I just really appreciated that in a way that I don't think I used to notice. And I'm grateful. I'm actually really grateful that I'm aware now. Yeah, I'll confess, when I started to think about it, the more I realized that what we often end up seeing are people feeling a sense of loss when they have to go to a new place, and particularly mm. in YA literature. I'm thinking about the number of narratives that we've seen where people start new schools, right? Like, I'm the new yes. kid in town, I'm the new kid in high school, or I've just moved from middle grade to uh, high school, and so on. And that feeling of being unmoored, but it's completely unconnected to any kind of place, right? Like it's mm -hmm. really, I'm missing my friends. I'm missing that old school, but mm -hmm. it's always so generic. Like I'm thinking back to uh, Love, Victor, the mm -hmm. Hulu series mm -hmm. that we watched where the whole thing is that Victor's entire life has been unmoored because his parents had to move in the wake of this, you know, scandal that his mom mm -hmm. was engaging in. But you never get a sense of what their life was like or what has changed mm -hmm. for them in having to move. It's just a relationship change. Yeah. And there's something that's lost there. The sister's entire storyline was about how she couldn't make new relationships with people because she was stuck wanting to be back with her old boyfriend and her friends. But all we ever see of that is like a picture on her phone. And it's just like, okay, well, that's not doing yeah. it for me. <laughs> no, no. And it's interesting because I'm trying to think of texts that have dealt with place effectively from a settler writer perspective. And you're going to hate me, Joe, but I'm coming to John Green now. Okay. <laughs> but I'm thinking about Paper Towns, and I'm thinking about the way Green writes about Orlando in Paper Towns. Right. And I think this is a good example because I think it's important to recognize that being anchored in place isn't necessarily – it doesn't have to just be like a positive love story, right? It doesn't just have to be like – my mom hearkening back to how everything is better with a British accent, right? Like, right. <laughs> there, there are ways to engage in place that are a lot more critical than that. And I'm thinking about the way that the characters in Paper Towns view Orlando as this non-city, right? And mm -hmm. also how weird it would be to grow up in a tourist town. Like, yes, I have a minor understanding of that from growing up in like a very picturesque village. But like the idea that you, you're literally just a way station for people going to Disney, like that's got to be weird. Mm -hmm. And that book is really negotiating place. And part of this idea of a paper town, like, what does it mean to be from a place that isn't a place? Mm -hmm. I think those meditations can exist and be really interesting. I'm sort of fascinated by, like, we talk about editors a lot more on the show than I ever expected we would. 
<laughs> well, we, we've read some interesting texts in that regard, yes. And I'm always surprised by the lack of an editorial hand saying, like, where does your book take place? Like, it seems like a really basic question that goes unanswered. And yet I would argue that I think what we're actually seeing is a deliberate avoidance of that very question. Mm -hmm. Because if mm -hmm. you name and specifically say something, like, I'm thinking of Canada, obviously mm -hmm. it's a national construct, but... We are considered Hollywood North for a lot of these productions, right? So mm -hmm. American productions will come up here, they will film, but they don't want it to be Canada. They want it to be Chicago. Mm -hmm. They want it to be New York. But even that, sometimes there is that reticence to name a place because they want it to be approachable to people who are living in the Midwest, the South. They want to be able to sell it to international countries. So if they can make it an amalgamous, eh, like, mm -hmm. well, who knows where the story is set? I think people think that it will sell better to other places. That's very true. There's a great little movie that Douglas Copeland wrote called Everything's Gone Green that is, at least in part, all about living in a place and always trying to mask its placeness because everybody mm -hmm. in the film works in the film industry in Vancouver. Right. And I know that that's something, you know, the new series of Degrassi, you often see them kind of wrestling with this, like... They have Ontario license plates and they clearly use Canadian money, mm -hmm. but they also, you know... They never speak about anything like Canadian. No, and the, the kids are all weirdly like thinking about going to American universities, which... Oh, that is not a real experience not for a, a lot of Canadians. Every graduating class has like one person who's going to the States and it's because they have like a cousin, you know? <laughs> like... mm -hmm. Or they're, you know, like Brian and they're going on a track scholarship or something right. like that. <laughs> right, totally. I don't know. I think sometimes when I watch Canadian YA, I just think that Americans must think we all just sit like gazing lovingly towards the border all the time. Like one day I will be in America. Oh, it's true. <laughs> I mean, the inferiority complex is real. It's real. Particularly with America. But I do feel like it's one of the things that I've come to appreciate about some of our international texts as well. Like I'm thinking mm -hmm. back to Schick, which is another mm -hmm. road trip text that we did cover. And folks, mm -hmm. if you didn't check that book out or that film, it's a high recommendation. But one of the things that was interesting was not having a sense of like, where are they? Because I don't know the country well enough, mm -hmm. but I still got a taste for what made certain parts of it distinct, right? Like they did a really good yes. job of establishing that the main character's house was modern and cold and unfeeling and there was like a weird connection when they drove through i want to say it's like the cornfields or or whatever agricultural landmark but like there's a sense of playfulness and movement and i don't know i i wonder if do we have to approach texts that have a road trip or travel component or do we have to look for books about characters who have moved from one location to another to get that sense of place and if not is the default just white land generic amalgamous i also think it's it's a really cynical reading particularly of american media consumption mm -hmm. that canadian productions always make this choice right like like schitt's creek is not in canada but it's also very clearly canadian and there's this assumption that we can't sell our space and place abroad and yet right. we constantly watch things that are set abroad because they're set abroad right mm -hmm. like i'm thinking about how much we love watching shows where british people go and buy castles in france and fix them right. up right like yes. what kind of gorgeous escape is and that kind of television is 
And back to your example of Schick, I think another title we did that dealt with place really well was looking for Alibrandi. I got uh, a yeah. really great sense of like the different neighborhoods, right? Suburbs and like how the city interacts, which I wouldn't have gotten if it had tried to be a just anywhere story, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I think people, human beings, inherently care about place. And I think when we try to universalize our storytelling, especially if we're doing it for commercial reasons, I think mm -hmm. we lose a lot. So that's on the one side. Like on the one side, I think that human beings really do care about where they are located in space and time. And then on the other hand, I do think it's undeniable that this is a theme we see primarily in like a kind of white mm -hmm. middle class literature where your place in the world is maybe it's the fact that it's wherever you want it to be and you don't have to engage in critical conversations about space. Mm -hmm. And I think that's yeah. a major loss too. Yeah, yeah. I definitely feel like I'm going to be paying closer attention to this when I'm reading and watching text now. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think this is probably a good place to wrap it up. But mm -hmm. I will say, I think one final construction that we should consider is one of the things that we primarily see in texts that deal with white characters is that they're often taking place in these large cities that don't have a lot of defining characteristics. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if it's also a bit of a testimony to what we're doing in terms of building out cities that all look generically, you know, skyscrapers made of blue tinted glass. Mm -hmm. And I say that as I look out my window at literally skyscrapers with blue tinted glass. Well, in suburbia in particular, right? We engage with suburbia a lot in YA, particularly mm -hmm. like middle-class white YA. And I think yes. that suburbia is i mean we get into a whole thing about suburbia that's a whole chapter in my dissertation but um, <laughs> this idea of like this conscious desire to create an every space yes and what that does for the psyche i think i have mm -hmm. one question for you before we drop the topic entirely okay because we've been talking basically about realism mm. how does place work in like because you're our genre guy and i'm thinking particularly in horror right like it seems to me from my limited exposure to horror that place is simultaneously really important on the micro scale because like this house has been targeted or it's like, yes, for whatever reason, it's this place. But at the same time, the macro scale of place, I don't think I've ever watched horror aside of maybe the witch where like the macro scale of place was critical. So I'm just wondering if, if you can see any analogs to this conversation in some of the other genres you engage with. Yeah, that's a fascinating point, because you're not wrong that a lot of the time the horror ends up becoming situated in very small, specific places. So like, there's the dark cellar or the creepy attic. A lot of horror does get vocalized through the family and therefore the home. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's examples where the horror is contained within a community. And I'm thinking of one of my favorite horror films, which is Candyman, but that's also tied very directly to income inequality and the black community in Chicago and the fear of white women going into primarily black neighborhoods and putting themselves at risk. Like it's, it's a fascinating conversation specifically with that film. I think I mentioned to you a while back that I read a YA property called Clown in a Cornfield, which is about mm. a teen girl who moves to a small town and there's a series of slasher attacks by the town's unofficial mascot. And 
That one definitely gives off the same kind of vibe where there's a placenessness because it's meant to be a stand-in for every small town you might imagine. So it's mm-hmm. like, just picture rundown properties, think about cornfields and a factory that has fallen into disrepair. Right. It's not meant to evoke a sense of place because they don't want you to think of somewhere specific they wanted to be everywhere small town America. Right, right. Huh. Okay, yeah. I'm interested because I'm also thinking like this whole conversation about placelessness is completely pointless for fantasy and sci-fi where like place has to be constructed, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to actually turn this over to our listeners to yeah. give us other examples if there's maybe specific subgenres, like we did obviously talk quite a bit about travel books or books that hit the road, are there other examples maybe where there's a rooted groundedness to it where you're still seeing this? I'd be interested to hear about those. But yeah, I mean, obviously other people are more well-versed in fantasy, and I would love to know if there's a relationship there where you're literally having to build out entire worlds so it becomes important. Like I am thinking even in big properties like Lord of the Rings, they open with maps so that you can understand the geography of the world. Yes. And it's actually funny that you say that because Pumpkinhead, again, I'm apparently going to talk about nine times today. Mm -hmm. It opens with a map (laughs) of the pumpkin patch because the pumpkin patch is huge and they end up having to like run all the way around it. It's a quest narrative. Right. And I was thinking when I opened it, it's nice to have a very frivolous, light YA comedy romance that is still very interested in location space and place and i Mm -hmm. i'm increasingly craving that okay joe well i guess that's a good place to leave this conversation but i am looking for suggestions because i'm increasingly interested in this so please listeners you're always good for recommendations let us know what we should be reading and watching to engage with place more Mm -hmm. and uh hopefully you're reading along with us and getting ready for our next book club which is joe it's Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. I still can't believe you've never read a Judy Bloom book. I know. It's very unusual, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I'm so excited for you. It's going to be so good. Um, <laughs> and then our next full-length text is... We're going to actually change the schedule up a little bit. And instead of talking about Vampire Diaries, as previously discussed, we're actually going to do a listener request, which is The Map of Tiny Perfect Things. So sorry, folks who may have begun reading The Vampire Diaries. We will circle back and cover this at a later point. But yeah, for now, check out The Map of Tiny Perfect Things, which is based on the short story by Lev Grossman and just recently came out on Amazon as a film. If you want to share with us ideas about space, place, or thoughts on Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. You can find us uh, on Twitter at HKHSPod or via the hashtag HKHSPod or anything longer, and particularly your reflections for book club, you can send those to hkhspod at gmail.com. Joe, if they want to find you to talk specifically about horror and placelessness, where will Mm. they find you? I am at B stole my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray, that's Gray with an A. If you just want to fangirl about Judy Bloom with me, I'm always there for that. There you go. Folks, this is the <laughs> easiest book club one to get into because everybody yes. loves Judy Bloom. Reminder, we need you to send us your thoughts before the episode, please. Yes, please. And it's a short middle grade book and it's a pandemic. What else are you doing? Go read it and tweet <laughs> us. <laughs>
<laughs> We're very upset with you all. Come on. Yes. Yes. All right. Until next time, everybody, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. 